Hey, welcome to the Elixir Roundtable. I'm Nathan Long. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. I'm Adam Phillips. I'm an engineering manager here at Dockyard. I'm Chris McCord, and Nathan forgot to say where the tables are definitely round. Um, I'm a staff engineer at Fly.io and an advisor for Dockyard. My name is Mike Benz. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. So I think first up on our discussion uh, today, we've got a few different topics, but one, the first thing up is Phoenix 1.6. Uh, Chris, you want to give us kind of the, the rundown? Sure. Yeah, there's a article on the Phoenix website uh, and on the Elixir forum. I just copy pasted it. Um, so yeah, it's it was released at like midnight last night. So like it should be fresh in my head, but I'm also on less sleep than normal. Uh, so anyone here can tell me if I missed anything, which actually Nathan did remind me. I did miss a big feature in the change log. Um, anyway, so the big stuff with Phoenix 1.6, is around uh, a few things. So one is our, we have some new generators. Uh, we have a new um, HTML aware template engine. And um, along with the Phoenix 1.6 release was a new like major library release that came out last week that I kind of like soft released, didn't announce it just cause they kind of go hand in hand. But the on the generator side, there's authentication generators that have um, been around for a long time as a hex package, but um, Aaron Renner did the work to um, take Jose's initial authentication implementation, make it into a um, package, and then we put that task inside of Phoenix. And it basically bootstraps an entire like user system, forgot password, email delivery uh, inside your app uh, without being like a library. So uh, Jose has a great blog on the Dashit blog that talks about why we went this route. But instead of trying to like shoehorn um, a broad authentication solution uh, as a library, it inevitably breaks down. Uh, we took the approach of we'll give you a security audited, well-tested uh, authentication solution that we generate into your app and then your team can extend that. Um, so like there's just a mixphoenixgen.auth, you kind of give it a, a few options like the module that you want the um, it, um, interface to live under and we just generate all that into your app and it's like a turnkey solution. Uh, that then you can extend. Uh, there's some mailer generators as well. So we always say that Phoenix has like the 80% use case of web apps covered, but we've ignored like the fact that people need to send email, um, which falls under that 80%. It's just not something that we wanted to own, uh, but that's finally uh, in there as like a mixed Phoenix gen notifier task. And we include uh, the swoosh library by default to send email. You can opt out of that with a no mailer uh, flag, but by default you get the ability to send email which basically anyone building anything user facing needs. Um, so before people complain, you can opt out of it and also you're gonna need it anyway. Um, so in addition to the generators, we have a, a Heeks templates. So we went from HTML EEX to HTML LEEX uh, for like live EEX. And then we went to a new template or new, a .html HEEX, uh, Heeks. Um, which is an HTML, HTML aware template syntax that provides some syntax conveniences um, inside of Live View. And the reason why we didn't just take leaks and add that was uh, it's, it is a more stricter syntax. Uh, so there's certain things since we parse HTML that you can't do, like uh, you can't do arbitrary Elixir EX expressions inside like an opening and closing HTML tag. Because when, when, we're, when we're parsing that, Technically, you could just inject any string you want and like close the tag, um, and that's impossible for us to know uh, that it's valid or not. 
Uh, so we have a new uh, kind of React style template syntax when you're inside an HTML tag only. Regular EX rules apply outside of that. But we needed a new uh, template engine. Uh, we couldn't just reuse leaks because it'd be a breaking change. Uh, so some leaks templates out there need a small amount of work to make them Heeks compatible. But that's why we introduced yet another extension. But like the Heeks is nice because it's like HTML. Um, and the other big part of that is we are standardizing on Heeks templates for any HTML that you're going to use in Phoenix. So you can render Heeks templates uh, without using LiveView and just return a string of HTML. So this is nice to share templates between your dead views and your live views, because now everything's a Heeks template. It's not this like weird um, duality where people would be unsure how they shared templates around. Um, so I encourage folks to check that out. We give like an example of the what the template syntax looks like, but essentially it's like the tag uh, becomes a function call. So you can just say like, you know, open tag my module dot badge and it renders a badge. Or if you import that function into the lexical scope, you can use like open tag dot badge as like a local function call. So really it's a convenience around calling a EX component function, but it makes your markup look much nicer. Because otherwise the problem with live view previously was the more components you used, you kind of lost the um, structure of the actual market that you were building. Uh, so it's a really nice quality of life improvement on that side. Um, in addition to that, we had some big live view features. Uh, one is uh, live sessions, which is uh, kind of optimized page navigation. So um, previously we would have to do an HTML, uh, or sorry, HTTP round trip. Uh, when you clicked a link, uh, and then we would do a WebSocket connection. So you would pay like a latency penalty. Uh, now we do all navigation over a the existing WebSocket connection. So it's gonna be like faster than any other framework that's doing kind of like the PJAX style or TurboLink style uh, navigation because they're still in they're still doing the HTTP handshake where we, we have a WebSocket connection and we just send like a single WebSocket frame and then it's going to replace your live view and do a push state behind the scenes. So you're going to get um, even speedier uh, live view experience using um, this live session based navigation. Um, in addition to that, that good. sorry, is that different from like live redirect that we had previously? Yeah, it's a great question. So it it's it applies when you use live redirect. So live redirect previously would incur uh, extra round trip to the server. We would have to go um, fetch some signed data behind the scenes. Uh, so it's still like live redirects on your in your template or from the live view still work just like they used to. They're just going to be twice as fast latency wise, uh, which is pretty neat. Um, what else did we do? Oh, we added uh, Michael Crumb added the idea of lifecycle hooks on the server to LiveView, uh, which is like a heavily requested feature. So like imagine you want to do authentication on mount. Well, before we would tell you to write a function and call it in ev everywhere and on mount and that can get tedious, but it worked. Now you can actually say like on mount um, call this function and uh, that function composes with other on mount hooks and any of those can halt or continue. So it's kind of like similar to like a plug idea. So you can add um, lifecycle hooks to enforce authentication on mount and then specify that in the router one time, kind of like a browser pipeline instead of repeating this code everywhere. Um, but we do that for mount, not only mount, but basically all the lifecycle callbacks. So if you want to run code for um, handle event uh, or before handle info, you can start to um, compose uh, and hook into these lifecycle events. So if you have like a library that says like, well, 
on your live view, I'm going to add this functionality, but I need to be able to um, receive messages uh, over PubSub on handle info if they match this, this uh, search. Now you can library uh, in mount, you could just call attach hook, you pass that library's function, and then it handles all those details internally. So when you receive a handle info message, it will pick it up. If it matches what it cares about, it will handle it. Um, it can take halt, it can do whatever it wants. So I think this is gonna be a really, pow really powerful feature for people wanting to hook into you know, events coming in, uh, doing PubSub stuff, or just like standard authentication on Mount. Um, and what I forgot to add to the changelog that Nathan reminded me is we, we've talked about it before, but we replaced Node and Webpack with ES Build for new projects. So you get a um, Node list, like Node doesn't have to be on the system, uh, or doesn't have to be, but if, if it's on the system, we're not using it. Um, and we can build, you know, bundle your JavaScript and CSS with a portable Go binary. Um, the nice thing about that is you don't have to install Node and deal with uh, breaking changes, but also this portable binary is gonna be essentially guaranteed to work years from now. So you fire up a project or a client comes in as we're used to in Dockyard. Uh, actually the most recent client that um, we worked on, the only issues that we had getting their application stood up is uh, was Node and Webpack related as it turns out. Um, so all of that kind of falls away. It's like if you're using ES build for JavaScript and CSS, it should essentially just work uh, for the foreseeable future, which is what you want uh, for maintainable software. Uh, so that's a big win in my book. And like running the generator, people are going to see how fast it is. Like what we do when it starts up is we'll go download the portable binary for your platform um, from the internet and then we run it, but it does it in like instantly so it's like it almost looks like it doesn't work because you, you run mixed phoenix server after starting a new project and it's just like downloading es build J J javascript built and you're like wait what like you know webpack used to like sit for a while and then like three three seconds later it'd be like oh it built all this stuff now it's like carriage return as soon as phoenix logs that it's running your it downloads the go binary and it's built your javascript before you can process what's happening uh, so that's pretty cool um but yeah that's essentially the one six release candidate and the 016 library release in a, I don't know, what was that? Eight minute <laughs> framed up. Any questions? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Is there anything that you give up with using ES build that you can't do anymore in terms of capabilities? Uh, something gets faster and easier to work with. What, what's yeah, there absolutely, there absolutely are. I, and I'm not like, like this is, this is one of the reasons why like Webpack was, uh, in retrospect, it didn't pan out because how many years has uh, myself and the Phoenix team been using Webpack along multiple versions? And I'm still like, I still barely know how to get it to work right for what I'm trying trying to do. Uh, so I, I think absolutely it's not going to be an easy fit for a lot of people if they're doing um, really complex JavaScript development with a lot of dependencies. Like Webpack has this idea of loaders um, that allows you to hook in and, and do all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you're using Babel to transpile to like really old uh, JavaScript versions, there's, there's a lot that people can be doing with Webpack that ESBuild uh, may not provide for you easily. So I don't want to say it's a perfect solution, uh, but at the same time, so, so let's restart. Anecdotally, like if you're just writing standard JavaScript, CSS, you want them bundled and minified, ESBuild is just going to work for you and be great. Uh, this includes live view apps all the way up to, you know, even React applications. So I think 
you can take it pretty far. I just don't want people to have a false sense that it will just work. But I, the anecdote that we have on the Phoenix team is Michael Crum works at CargoSense. They have a sizable React application that was taking uh, like 45 seconds to build. Um, their Webpack was taking 45 seconds to build the JavaScript bundle on any on any change, which is which is pretty crazy. Um, and he added ES build, um, got down to like seven seconds with ES build, building a React app, which is you know obviously non-trivial. So I think it it could work, but it may require some uh, trial and error, and it may have something that you know just doesn't fit your needs. Um, but I encourage folks to try it out, especially given uh, if you have really slow webpack builds, it may be a, a pretty pretty big win. That's cool. Yeah, we've on the project that I work on, our JavaScript usage is pretty simple, but we still have had a lot of pain with Node. So we're excited to try this out. Yeah, and the upgrade guides um, that I linked in the announcement have a um, the optional step-by-step -step instructions to get the ES build solution in place. From your existing uh so i think yeah it's important to say the existing webpack uh configuration will just work like phoenix has always been build tool agnostic you just told it what uh cli command to run and your like uh wxs endpoint config so like if you're still if you want to still continue to use webpack by all means if it suits your needs go for it but uh, if you want to give es build a shot we do have instructions uh, linked in the uh, announcement cool Anybody else have questions right now or thoughts? I was going to ask about uh, something like Tailwind uh, that looks actually like that's going to be pretty trivial to roll over as well. Yeah, so uh, Jose, I, I actually plan, I, I will go back and link this in the step-by-step uh, in -step instructions. I plan on linking, uh, Jose put a, just a personal repo together showing how to use like Tailwind. Uh, so what you can do is you run ES build, but you also run an additional Tailwind CLI watcher uh, as part of your Phoenix watchers. So Phoenix just starts a Tailwind uh, CLI and ES build, and they both play nice together. Uh, so if you want, if you wanted to use Tailwind, uh, that can still work as well. Obviously, you'll have to uh, still do an npm install and, and get Tailwind and still have a node modules directory, but there's still a happy path there. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, I think we didn't talk about this pre on a previous episode, but the nice thing with ES build is in the generated app.js, we kind of tell people they can either, you know, add a dependency to their vendored asset directory and import it directly, or to uh, just use node, they can just go to their assets directory, do an NPM install foo bar, and then ES build is aware of, of node modules by default. So like your upgrade path, if you if you say like, well, I've got all this, like, you know, it's great that you don't need node, but I need node, right? A lot of people need node packages. They're, the path to go from what we generate to using node is literally just CD assets, NPM install, like you normally would, and then ES build just picks it up. There's no like configuration file for ES build to write. It just knows about it. And you can just start using node if you need node. Uh, so I think that's a great question, Adam. It's important to, to highlight that it still plays nice. It's not like, oh, well, great, I can, Stay away from Node, but I need Node, and now I have to go to Webpack. Like, it's still, still can use um, in both worlds. Mike, were you going to say something? Yeah, no, I was just saying I was interested to dive in. I, I haven't had a chance to to dig into it. Um, the um, the it's interesting. The the that a, that a tag is a function. Is that does that mean that the attributes that you pass into that tag get passed into the 
function as uh, how's that how's that magic yeah work? so the the attributes the tag attributes are just assigned uh okay. to um the function call so the function components are just functions that receive assigns which are what your you know a map of key values like you're used to and then you the job of the function is to return a sigil h um eeks template and you can just use those assigns within that template uh, so the uh, caveat here is we only support stateless function components with the special tag syntax at the moment um part of that is that's actually currently for it's an arbitrary restriction but um there is a cost to stateful components if you're on the server it's like they're stateful so they require you to hold state so we don't want people to write a bunch of accidental stateful things because they want the tag to look pretty um you know like if, if you're coming from react especially people are used to creating like many nested trees of components for like all kinds of things uh so uh, right now this template syntax is reserved for just stateless function calls so if you if you want to say if a component that can do like handle event and receive messages from the client hold its own state you're still going to have to call a live component uh, so the syntax is reserved for um, these stateless function calls gotcha yeah, that, okay yeah that makes sense it, so it's it's not a it's not a live component replacement or drop-in type thing this is for really smaller chunks of code yeah exactly so like you can still componentize things uh, and your live components can be made up of these function components that are reusable and you know badges that you want to show but the the dynamic part of like the the staple components currently you have to use the uglier syntax um and at the moment that's intentional to um i guess like there should be some thought there like when in my template you know i i want it, it should be clear that what i'm doing has a cost versus like oh this is a table right like there's a there's a big difference there like if it's just spitting out html or if it's actually having uh, this pseudo process on the server that takes memory. Uh, so right now it's um, an intentional, I guess, um, limitation. Gotcha. Uh, that, that helps helps uh, figure out where, where it could be used. When it I says... Mean, so my, my goal, sorry, Nathan, my, my goal long-term is like, uh, so the Phoenix generators largely uh the live generators are largely the same except they'll use instead of form for we have a form function so this is a great example of like we've got a if you generate like mixed phoenix gen live posts right like like a blog post crud interface and in live view um the the form uh component that renders that crud interface is still a module that we call live component on but it uses internally a form um dot form imported function so form four has been replaced with a uh, stateless eeks function and you get like the form syntax and uh, if that makes sense. So you can still compose um, much of your app uh, inside live components with these building blocks that have a nice syntax. So it's not like, I think it, it still has a broad use case. It's just for the actual top level component that is staple, you're going to be calling live component. It says that Heeks will parse and validate the HTML, HTML structure. What is it? Is it just like if you open a tag, you have to close it? Or is it like, I know that div is valid and aside is valid, but foo is not valid? No, it's it's basically, yeah, open, closing tag type stuff. OK, We're so pretty... you could 
Could you maybe write would, XML with this if you wanted to? Yeah, sure. Like we're pretty, yeah, we're very liberal in what we allow. Um, like it needs to just look like valid XML essentially. Okay, cool. Because I'm gonna write XML with it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, go for it. That's there's that's that should work. Um, I no, think like just don't. Yeah, I I linked in also I linked in the in the announcement. There's uh, the Heeks roadmap is an issue on Live View. Uh, so this is kind of like laying the groundwork for like my my event. This, this is where I was going with this earlier. My eventual goal for the live generators are more uh, higher level components. Like right now we just have the form, but the goal would be the table that we list of your posts or whatever your resource was, I'd like that for that to be a component. Uh, so eventually we'll have kind of like, the goal is eventually off the shelf components for like, I wanna render a table, you know, let's say uh, it's a it's a function, right? That you call like dot table as a tag, um, but that in, behind the scenes could be using Tailwind. So I think there's some really neat ideas. We still have to like experiment and prove them out, but imagine if out of the box, the live generator is generated uh, the CRUD code you have now, but built off of form components, table components, and then you could be like, well, I want to use Bootstrap or I want to use Tailwind, but the same components existed, right? So you could almost like swap in themes, so to speak, and uh, largely not have to go change classes everywhere, just on the component themselves. So I think that's like the long-term vision is getting to a place where we can do something like that, or at least attempt to do something like that. But uh, the Heeks roadmap has kind of like what needs to happen first. And one would be like the idea of slots. Uh, Surface has this, but if you're familiar with other like view um, JS, a lot of client side frameworks have this idea of like uh, in EX or Heeks, you can pass an assign. Like I want to have uh, this label have a title. And then you say like, okay, at title in your EX, like that works. But what if you wanted to say, I, I want this header like to be able to slot in a bunch of markup. Like you can't do that today uh, in live view. Uh, so that's something we wanna add where a caller can essentially give you a block of markup and they're like, I want you to render your um, header navigation. But within that, I wanna say, this is the profile dropdown slot. And then I can do whatever I want there, whatever markup or, or whatnot. So that's um, something that's required to get, to get to this like componentized themable future that I would like to experiment with, experiment with but follow along on that issue if, if people are interested in those kind of things. Cool. Anything else uh, we have on 1.6? At the moment, try it out, report issues. Uh, this far, I think there's been like typo issues, um, no big problems. It's always like, yeah, you, you release something and then you're like, this is like eerily quiet. So, I mean, it, it hasn't, it's been like half a day, but I encourage folks to try it out. I mean, I, honestly, actually what usually happens is people wait for the RCs to be over and then we get issues once we go final. So like people, people don't actually use the RCs like they're meant to be used, but uh, it's reasonably baked at this point. Like one six has been very close to done for a long time. Uh, we've kind of been just, solving the Heeks engine side of things. Uh, so I think I don't expect a lot of issues, but absolutely the release candidates are for people to try out and, and make sure things are are super ready to go. But I, I don't expect to see many issues. Cool. Um, Mike, do you want to talk about your project you've been working on? Sure. Yeah. So kind of hinted, I think, of the last, uh, last uh, 
roundtable or two, but uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, put out a blog post uh, announcing uh, Cobalt to Elixir, which is came out of a kind of a, a random uh, back and forth what if uh, in in the, the dockyard uh, Slack uh, of what if what if we could take uh, Elixir and turn it into Cobalt? Sorry, take Cobalt, turn it into Elixir. Um, and uh, yeah, you don't want to go. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go the other way. Um, so uh, yeah, so the idea being that right now there's like some crazy percent, like seventy-five or eighty percent of like all financial transactions still run over COBOL. So there's a lot of lot of stuff out there that could potentially be upgraded uh, in the near future. And so, you know, what if what if what if we could, uh, you know, point those those that are looking to upgrade towards Elixir, uh, similar to how you know uh the nx stuff is 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 trying to capture some of the uh machine learning and you know obviously live view and and uh phoenix are capturing the the, the you know general web stuff um but yeah so it's it's a it's kind of it, well it started off as a really long shot um it's still still a long shot as to whether it'll be uh it'll be successful or not um uh, but it's yeah just it's ready to be be released uh, out to see if uh, people want to start uh, playing around with it. Um, it has uh, some of the basic features as far as input and output um, and procedure calls and all that. It will uh, transpile into Elixir. Um, so some you know pretty big hurdles to get to get over right now. I'm working on uh, file access and so taking the COBOL file manipulation uh, idea and uh, pattern and translating that into Elixir so that um, we can transpile those those sort of files. Um, yeah, and so it's like I said, it's still still very early phases. Um, what what I do what I do think is 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 what I really like about it so far is that we can take COBOL code, it, basically the testing framework that, that was built that was built around it. So you can take uh, COBOL code and uh, in inside an Elixir test, you can execute that in COBOL and get the output. And then we can run our own code to convert that to Elixir and then execute the Elixir code and get the output. Um, and so that testing framework is built. Uh, it allows you to send input and it allows you to get the output and then compare them uh, all all in you know a couple of helper functions. So. Uh, yeah, that's where it's at, and uh, just gonna keep moving forward on features for now. Uh, if anyone out there is is interested in in taking a look at this, um, it's it's on my uh, my GitHub. Just the first Avenger Cobalt to Elixir, Cobalt underscore two underscore Elixir, and it's out. It's out on Hex, but um, yeah. Uh, and if any if any any companies out there are interested in in uh, in taking a, a test ride of it or or, or uh, Take a look at it. Reach out. You know, we'd love to love to chat and see what what uh, what it would take for that to be something that would be useful. And the selling point for a lot of these systems that they're they're financial systems or or, or whatever their their kind of infrastructure that they want to be on a platform that's very reliable. And that's all. That's the beam is built for reliability from the beginning for the phone system, and an Elixir is just this beautiful like tool set on top of that reliable foundation. So right. that's why yeah. we think it makes sense to move to Elixir specifically as opposed to moving to, I don't know, Python yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you, know, you don't 
you don't stick with a what 60 or 70 however many year old language uh if it's not reliable you know that that that's really i think why why people have stayed with their existing cobalt systems because it just works and it just keeps working um but you know as as cobalt engineers become fewer and harder to find um you know that's eventually they're just going to have to uh, make that jump and so if we can if we can uh you know provide a tool that will get them you know some of the way there it's it's not you know they're not going to run this and all of a sudden they've got you know production ready uh, elixir code this is this would be uh you know the first step in uh in you know converting a bulk the bulk of their code but then you know jump to walk through uh through that elixir because you're you're not creating idiomatic elixir necessarily well you're 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 not creating idiomatic idiomatic elixir but you're creating elixir that works so then you're you know your your second step after running this would be to go through and then say okay you know this is this is this is what it looks like in elixir but what would it look like to you know update this and make this more idiomatic but you have a functioning uh, set of code um so yeah that's cool awesome do we know um i'm clueless at how like what the cobalt ecosystem looks like uh integration wise library wise but like like does cobalt like i know like io obviously is the like the current feature you're working on but like do they talk to databases often like is there any idea of like um what that would look like i mean obviously like the, the goal is this is a starting point but do you have any right. thoughts on like like uh off the shelf is there a ton of like legacy database integration that will also have to be solved like or, or is it standard for cobalt to kind of be like on a mainframe somewhere right into a file and um maybe you know this database idea is less less common yeah so uh what's as far as what's the most common i don't have information on that i know what you know yes obviously it'll it'll work with database and db2 is like the, the i want to say the big one but um there's a lot of you know flat file manipulation reading and writing um and so uh yeah it's that that's some of the work that needs to be done and, and again if there's if there's companies out there that are that are interested uh or or you know would want to work with with dockyard on figuring this stuff out uh you know it'd be it'd be great to to hear from from people um but yeah right right now again it's it the fir my my first steps are is it even possible um and so I'm working through that. And if it is, then we can figure out what, you know, what, where to focus on, on, you know, yeah, like I said, what libraries, what, inter, what uh, interactions are, are being, being used most that we need to support. So. Yeah. And I guess like if your transpiler, even like if it encountered a remote function call and transpiled that to like, you know, DB query, and then here's the string of the query. And like obviously that's not just gonna go talk to the database, but it that would be a good starting right. point to be like, oh yeah. okay, this is exactly it's extracting yeah. all that for you to be like, okay, here are the points now that like I need to make this one part work versus like a from scratch rewrite. So that, that right. makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the 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 path I have at least right now, which may change, is is there's three there's three parts of it. There's the tokenizer that goes through and basically turns the string strings into lists of like uh tuples and atoms and stuff to basically say that you know i understand this code um and then there's the parser that takes that and turns that into 
a basically a module that has a list of all the functions and all the variables and 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 stuff in a in a in a an elixir struct. Um, and then there's the elixirizer that takes that that module and turns it into actual elixir. And so what on, on each level, you know, the tokenizer doesn't recognize something, it'll kick out a warning and say, I, you know, I don't I don't know what to do with this. And similarly on the, the parser. Uh, so so yeah, so as part of your you, when you run it, it'll say, hey, this is a feature that I don't know how to do deal with. And so uh, if uh, you know if we were to partner with with someone or a company that would actually want to do this, we would the idea there would be that you'd run the code, see what's missing, and then go back and update Cobalt to Cobalt to Elixir to add those features and then rerun it and you know kind of iterate on it to to improve improve Cobalt to Elixir, but then you know make it make it work better for your specific uh, requirements so and then yeah like if, if there's something it's like you know what this we're just not going to be able to transpile this it's we we can note it somehow and then you jump into the the generated code and and work on it just as if you were weren't working with a transpiler just implement that feature so it's you know, you know, more of the 80 20 type rule where we'll yeah. we can get a most a bunch of it uh moved over and figure out what 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 else needs to get done Awesome. Do you have any resources that you use for like the tokenizer and the parser? Like I've never written a tokenizer or parser before, so be curious. Yeah. If there's any, uh, anything, so anything uh, before this project, I haven't either. So I kind of went with a pretty uh, naive approach of splitting the strings and and pattern and you know and matching on stuff. Um, that's one of the things that I think actually might be a, a good to, for me. You know, I want to have a couple, a couple more of the features done is to go back and look and see if if there's a better way to actually handle that. Because um, it what it, the way the way it's being done now might not be really maintainable, um, and so there you know some sort of parser uh, that a, a better way of defining how how things are being parsed. Like I said, it's very. It's very. I know uh, there's like nimble member parsec. Or, yeah, or yeah. Parsec, that may so. be worth worth checking out. But yeah, this is kind of yeah, all new yeah. to me. So yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's it's, it's, it's new to me me too. So that's that you know that that it might be that nimble parsec is what I what I what what that becomes. Um, but yeah, again, this this is exploratory and see see what what sort of um, what sort of interest is out there. Um, you know. Uh, I, all, all it would take, I think, is one one company or one one uh, place, one set of code that where people would be interested in trying it out, and they can see see how it goes. So, I have a, a question um, that you know, I guess, uh, it comes from a place of knowing absolutely nothing about COBOL other than you know what we're taught in. I like ancient computer history classes now. Um, I, I see people talk about uh, environments, like it, not just the COBOL language, but like the environment it runs in being uh, almost as important, if not more so than the COBOL language itself. Like long-term roadmap, is this, it seems like this would be the, and maybe this goes back to the 80-20 rule, but it seems like this is like the great first step, but do you have you had a chance to look at all into like some of those different environments and how they cause different COBOL code bases to behave? 
I haven't. No, not at this point. At this point, I'm 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 working with um, the basics. So I have like you know I haven't got into much of the the integration stuff beyond like I said I'm now doing working with file stuff. And there are one of the big uh, you know potential issues is there are a lots of different dialects of COBOL, and so so being able to adapt to that and handle things that you know aren't necessarily the you know I, I I'm I'm basing everything right now off of uh, using the GNU the GNU COBOL um, compiler and so uh, that's that's what I'm I'm building too uh, but there are uh, you know like I said there's different different flavors and so the question of how much is that going to uh, how how much would we need to tweak the code base to to target a specific uh, version of the language or dialect so that's 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 definitely out there as a as a, a thing. And again, you know, like I said, if 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 there are companies out there that are interested, you know, we'd love to you know, see what see what's actually going on and um, and try 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 it out and see what see what happens. I may have I may end up accidentally uh, volunteering some help, uh, but I do have to say, Elixirizer is. Um, is a fantastic name, and I think I'm going to start I know. using it. Yeah, a lot. That was that was. <laughs> I was like, oh, I got. I know. I know tokenizer and uh, and parser, and I'm like, well, what? I was, sure, you know, why not? What's your idea? Nice. Yeah. Uh, do we have time to do another topic, or do, should we drop? What do you think, guys? Uh, we have one. Sure. So uh, I have a little bit of a just a kind of experience that I've been learning from. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm laughing because some of you have heard me rant about this a little bit. But um, yeah, so so pagination is a really common thing that we do in applications. Um, a really common way to do that is, you know, with, when you're querying records from the database, you do um, like a, an offset. You know, you, you do you get your records and the first time it's offset zero and you know you get the first hundred and then it's offset a hundred and you skip the first hundred and show the next hundred and so on and that kind of works okay it works it works pretty well um as a first pass but there's a there's a couple problems with that this is this is a known thing for a long time uh, one of the things that's that's a problem with that is it gets more and more inefficient the farther you paginate in so when you're doing offset 10 million the database is doing a lot of work to look to to get those records ahead of where you're going and, and then it has to discard them uh, and doesn't really have a better way to do it than that uh, i know l mentioned that uh index support should should help with that some but it um it doesn't seem to do a whole lot in my experiments and the issue is is that um especially well, I can't give a great in-depth explanation of, of why this is the case, but experimentally, that doesn't work. <laughs> and, um, uh, the the index is like a, a, um, a B-tree index isn't laid out linearly. I think that's part of it. it it's, it's still got to figure out, especially like if you've got sorts and whatever, it's basically got to figure out what's ahead of that one to be able to do the offset. Um, so paging is one issue. And then another, I mean, another issue with paginating is um that it can be inconsistent like imagine you're sorting records newest to oldest so you see the newest at the top and then you go to page two so you do offset 100 but in the meantime some new stuff came in so now 
it's like off and you you missed some records or you saw some records twice or whatever as things change. Um, so the the standard answer to how to do this better is what's called key set pagination. So with key set pagination, you make use of your index and and you'll say, like the first page I showed you up to ID 102. And your next query will be uh, where ID greater than 102 limit 100 or whatever. And that way, if stuff is missing or if stuff has been added, um, you can you, you get a more consistent experience and it gets to use the it gets to use the indexes much more efficiently. That where condition is the key to that. Um, this is also sometimes called cursor-based pagination. And the reason is because um, to be able to do that, the user can't just, the user has to send back, hey, the last one that I saw was ID 102. And then you can pick up from there. Uh, and that that thing they send back to you is called a cursor. So, um, and typically people want that cursor to be opaque because they don't want the user to have any real knowledge of what's in that. And even if it's just like a, base 64 encoded things, just kind of giving a signal like, don't mess with this. This is none of your business. <laughs> um, uh, and so that's that's a, a typical kind of solution. Uh, the thing that I ran into on the project that we're on is UUIDs. Um, like a lot of projects, you know, you, you your basic database setup you've, that's most common with Ecto or Active Record or those kinds of tools, you, you, you generate a schema, and it's got an auto-incrementing integer ID on every table, and that's what you do. But sometimes on projects, people want to use a UUID for some records for the reason that they want to have a little bit of um, obscurity around how many records there are or how, you know what the next record might be so that somebody can't go, oh, I see I'm invoice 200. I know you've gotten 200 invoices in your history. and I wonder what's that invoice 201 or 199, you know, like start messing around in your system. So instead, your URL has this giant UID that they can't possibly guess what another one is uh, with any reliability, and it doesn't give them any information. And that's fine. Um, that That is the case on the project that I was on for, uh, that I'm on right now for some uh, mostly historical reasons. It doesn't actually matter that much for us. But, um, the issue there is when that UUID is your primary key. Because unless you go out of your way to find a kind of UUID that is sortable, generally speaking, UIDs don't sort in any meaningful way. So if you want to do key set pagination, that you have to have, to do key set pagination, you have to have um, a column that's sortable and unique. Because imagine it's like you're trying to do this on inserted at but two records are inserted at the same time. And so the first record shows up as the last one on the first page, and then you say greater than that, that date time, and you skip the second one when you go to the second page. So you need something that's unique, um, but it also needs to be order, you know, ordered in, in a reasonable way. So um, <laughs> we're, we're in the process of setting up a, a a GraphQL API where we need pagination and we want pagination to be efficient. We want to be able to paginate a lot of records. And so um, I'm setting up cursor-based key set pagination for that. And I've been going through and having to go backfill and switch to uh, integer auto-incrementing IDs on tables that had UUID. 
uh, and and you you could you could um, and maybe I should have just added a sequential column without messing with the primary keys uh, and swapping around all the foreign keys and all that business. That would have been less painful. I probably should have done that. But I would like to say that if you're thinking about setting up a project and you're thinking about using UUIDs, I would strongly encourage you to use integer IDs and, and also have UUID, a UUID column if you want that. Um, even though that seems a little wasteful to have both of them, because you can use the UUID, you can have a unique index on it, you can do your lookups and put that in the URL and everything, but you get the ability to do key set pagination, um, you get the ability to reference things a lot more easily. It's just more, e it's easier for a human to say record 205 than to read a UUID, and it's easier to type. Um, and also it's kind of the, the happy path for tools like Ecto and Active Record and whatever else. So less work to deal with, better ergonomics, and better future proofing for features you're probably going to want. Um, so that's kind of my rant on that. <laughs> uh, the, the side rant on, uh, on that is that, that with GraphQL, it's not as easy as I would like within Absinthe to do key set pagination. The, the, the standard for pagination in GraphQL seems to be the relay spec, um, which has quite a bit of it's interesting. Uh, it's it's got an interesting structure that the user has to request. Um, you know, when you're doing a REST API, you have a lot of you have control over what you send back to the client. But when you're doing a GraphQL API, they're specifying exactly what they want to see. And so, if they're going to get that pagination information, they have to type in the structure of how that's going to come back in their query. And the way that it comes back. Initially, I just looked at it and I was like, I don't understand this at all. Like, this looks really complicated. And what, like, now that I've spent some time with it, it makes sense, but it still is kind of complicated. It's like you've got edges and nodes, and then underneath your nodes, you have the records, and then like at the level of the edges, you have the cursors, and uh, it's a lot to look at. And we have, we have a concern that our users of our API aren't going to be familiar with that. And they're going to be like, well, what is all this boilerplate I have to do just to paginate? Um, so I'm not sure if there's, a, if there's an easier way we can provide for them. But that is kind of the standard way that a lot of tools expect. So we feel like we have to at least provide that way. Um, and maybe we'll have more than one way. But that, that's a little bit thorny. Uh, but but the, the, the Absinthe Relay uh, package, by default, does limit offset pagination which makes sense because they don't know anything about your schema. They don't know what record you, what column they could do key set pagination on. And limit offset will work with any query. But it's a little, I found it a little bit difficult so far to shoehorn that in to the point that I'm kind of writing my own module to be able to do it. So um, that's been an adventure and <laughs> trying to think through all the scenarios uh, that you can get with pagination because you can say, you can say, um, give me this many records before this play, before this cursor, uh, and take the first number of records after that cursor. Or you can say, give me this many records after this cursor, and the, and this many records before that cursor. Um, I can't. Refer maybe I didn't say that right. You can do you can do after with first and before with last. So give me the last 200 records before this cursor, which means you have to 
reverse the order of the query, query that many records, and then get the results and flip them and you know, reverse them again to get hand them back in the right order. And uh, and just thinking through all of the scenarios of all the, like the parameters that can come in and which ones make it doesn't make sense to give first and last together. I don't think it makes sense to give before and after together for pagination. So I'm not supporting those things. But the the combinations you can have. Uh, it was I, I I used a technique to write this code which I I um, stumbled into doing at a previous job. Um, which I called blind refactoring guided by tests. <laughs> so it was like, I got to write this code. It's got to handle all these different scenarios. And I don't understand the underlying unifying logic that makes this make sense. So what I did was, in both of these scenarios, I wrote tests for every possible scenario. And he, like, I give it this, I should get this. I give it this, I should get this. And then I wrote a giant pile of conditional code. That's <laughs> just like, Every single scenario as a separate condition, copy paste everything you know that they have in common and mess around. And then like once the tests are passing, then I just start very slowly finding the common bits, refactoring them, refactoring them. If the test breaks, I know I messed up and try again. And you know, maybe like just throw away that commit and come back and and then eventually you get to a point where it's like, oh, now I see how it works. <laughs> <laughs> and that's beautiful. Uh, and I described it like I, I had these. I had four different function heads that slowly became identical. And at the end, I deleted three of them. And I was like, ah, it's like it's like when you get that that vertical block in Tetris, and the rows disappear. <laughs> it was nice. Uh, but it was it was it was even more enlightening at the in the previous job that I had it because I like when I finally got it refactored, it was like the code was explaining to me the actual correct procedure. I was like, now I see what, what it does and why it works this way. Um, so anyway, that I think that's a fun that's a fun technique to get to apply when you have a scenario for it. Awesome. Yeah, I, I kind so, of I take that approach quite often, but like sometimes like I hit this in live view, this is a couple of versions ago, but like, you know, you, you just you get the you like you smash the keyboard till stuff works and you're like, it works, awesome. And I can verify that it works, and then you try to make it nice. But it, sometimes what happens is like I have false starts on actually like making it nice, and like oh here's the pieces that beautifully put together. And like one time with Live View, I did like I took three attempts at like making the pile of terribleness like correct, and failed three times, but in the same exact ways. It was like you know try to make it pretty, get lost with what I'm doing. It's not getting better revert back to where I started three hours later. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna do it right this time. And I end up like taking the same exact path that I took previously. I don't know if you've ever gone down this, but like I did it with live view three, three separate times, three attempts. I ended up like going down the same exact path where I was like, what the heck? Like my brain just couldn't like, you know, like I didn't think I was doing it, but by the time I look up from the keyboard, it's like, wait, this is exactly what I did. But, but in general, I really like that approach of like, like first make it work and then like, figure out how to actually make it be nice and maintainable. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely is the way to go versus trying to make it perfect from the outset. When half the time, yeah, you don't you don't really even realize exactly what you're building. Yeah, that's that's what that's that's cobalt elixir. It's getting it getting it to work and, and tweaking tweaking it and then taking a step uh, you know take a step back and say what you know what does this actually look like from a higher level. Um, to to your 
the original so the original problem was the pagination right and the the issue with uuids was that there's a potential that if they're inserted at the same time that you could, they could flip but what if your what if your um pagination was that you you sent the you know the uuid for since you know like i want all i want the next 20 since this one um, but your sorting was was uh inserted at and um uuid so then you're you would always have a guaranteed order even with a collision on uh on time that would be uh guaranteed uh across requests yeah let's see that might work great actually um i'd have to think about it some more and and it would be funny if i did all this work and i didn't need to <laughs> but uh yeah I, I think that could work i mean one of the things that you have to make sure of with this is that you have your indexes set up correctly. Right. I looked at approaches where you where you sort by where, where you do where um, so your cursor has to I, I think your cursor had to has to include both of the values, but maybe it doesn't. Now that you're saying this, I'm I'm questioning myself. I was thinking your cursor had to include both of the columns that you were sorting by, um, but since you've got a UUID, I don't see why it would. People sometimes have done approaches where you have like a tuple that you build, like where um, last name ID as a tuple is greater than this cursor last name ID, and that gets really hairy for index support because then you have to in, you have to index by that tuple as well, and then if you want to reverse paginate efficiently, you have to index by that that tuple in reverse, and then any other column you want to sort by, you have to do that as well, and that's just just a mess. Right. Um, yeah, I think but, I, I'm, I'm looking at it as, as the separation of concerns, right? The real issue is that the order isn't correct, or the order could potentially flip. And so if that's the only problem, then on the serve, on, on, you know, at the database level, if you're, the, the problem is that order isn't guaranteed. So the question is, how do you guarantee order? And that would be by sorting on a second, the second field. And that could be at the lowest level. And I mean, my, my first, my first thing would be to say, does, does, as far as how the database actually behaves, is it in in practice actually going to flip them? You know, if you if you request things from a database and you sort by an insert of that, and there's two exactly the same insert of that, is it going to? You know, you might say you might not want to rely on that, but in practice, yeah, you, it might actually re return it every time. You don't want to rely on that. We actually have flaky tests sometimes where okay. a, a sort order isn't specified. With any SQL yeah. database, if you don't specify a sort order, you just don't know. I mean, okay, yeah, yeah. Then, then in that worth, case, definitely. It's, it's worth pointing out the um, Chris Keithley has a HL clock library, uh, which is hybrid logical clocks, and there's a HL clock Ecto library, which uh, Postgres can. Um, it's ectotype for a hybrid logical clock, which is essentially like a UUID with a timestamp that is uh, globally unique. So this is something maybe that, you, that could also be considered where it's like it's guaranteed to be or orderable, um, even if um, multiple riders like inserted at the same time, it's going to be sortable and indexable by Postgres. Um, it may or may not be like it may be overkill for what folks need but it's at least worth pointing that out it solves this problem of 
like your inserter that is wouldn't be used. It was like the UUID itself carries um, a timestamp basically as part of it, and it's, it's going to be uh, it's going to have uh, it's going to it's going to um, not have conflicts with other writers with some caveats that like there's like a 60,000 operations per second um, maximum before there's a time collision. Um, and bringing that up, like the only other thing I wanted to call out, I, I don't think it applies here, Nathan. So like, I don't want to be like, oh, well, uh, if you're building a distributed system. Um, so I think what you said about pagination and integer IDs totally makes sense. I mean, I, I use integer uh, IDs by default as well. Um, but I at least want to call out like the other thing that we haven't talked about is like, UIDs are really good for global uniqueness. So like if you have multiple writers uh, in a distributed system that like if the client, uh, it basically allows the client to control uh, the ID when that's advantageous because um, multiple clients can do something uh, and then write, you could then later write it to Postgres and you have to figure out like, well, who won? Um, it could be the last write wins or you could use, use something like hybrid logical clocks where you would actually be able to figure out uh, who actually won uh, that. But that's, like I said, a totally another topic. It's just since we're on the HL clock stuff, I wanted to call that out that uh, UIDs are really good for, like, yeah, like obscuring the URL, but all, also uh, for global uniqueness. I, for me, for me, uh, the other thing that pushes me towards the UUIDs is as basic as if I'm testing and I need to reset the database, if my seeds can have the same IDs, and not be, you know, that that I've, I've on my current project, I've had that be super helpful. That you know, I've got I've got a, a live view page I'm working on, and, and the UIDs right in there. And if I mix ecto reset, it I'm working on a, a, a an entity that's in the seed, so it's still there when I re, when I you know refresh. So small, small thing. So, so um. Mike, I think, and it's hard for me to, I, I, I'm, I'm like intimidated to do this on the fly because I've stared at this stuff a whole bunch and I'm like, I'm probably gonna get this wrong on the air now. But the thing with the UUID that you're describing, yeah, you can have a, you can have UUID be a tiebreaker for a non-unique field like an inserted at. But so like if you have midnight and then the UUID is AAA, right? And then obviously it's longer, but let's just pretend. And then you have another midnight CCC by the timestamps, there's no ordering, but you know the the UID right. then breaks breaks that tie. So that works for sorting, but then you could have a, a 1 a.m. AAA or or AAB, let's say, right? And so then you say, okay, we're greater than where UID is greater than CCC. Um, no, you you would you would say it wouldn't be where UUID. It would be it would just be select from uh, select from you would you would say let's say no, I'm trying to think. It have to be where it's not that ID. Like you want to exclude it. But it it's gotta right, be determined. Yeah, what's the, yeah, be the where? You can't what's the, yeah. You can't your where not in will get you the non-dupe result, but you have to have something that you can sort on. Otherwise, yeah, it's yeah, all so bets that are off. So that doesn't fix it. Yeah, it's the it, it fixes. It, it gives you guaranteed ordering, but um, yeah, yeah. You can't say where it's greater than that. You, you'd have you want you want to say where, where 
yeah, you want to be able to say where where order yeah you want to be able to say where timestamp comma uuid is greater than midnight comma ccc and that right. that works but then you have uh indexing is painful for that kind of thing yeah yeah you you, you yeah really what you want is you want to say say where it's greater than this specific record uh, yeah in, exactly and in, in, in greater meaning based on this sort where it's after this item um, yeah, and it's too late on a Friday for my for me to <laughs> yeah connect so the, the dots there. So the easiest the easiest yeah, scenario. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to like put my head to this problem too, and it's like, yeah, here's like the last ten percent. You're like, yeah, my brain's not working. Yeah, the the scenario that that like is easiest to understand and makes the most sense is just you have this sequential ID. You know, you, you saw record fifty last, and then you just say where greater than fifty limit fifty, and that works beautifully, um, but anything anything other than sorting by that column <laughs> and and keying off of that column, it starts to become kind of uh, either hard to implement or hard to understand. So this 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 will work. Um, you make your insert of that unique, and on collision, you just add a millisecond, add add a second, and just. Sorry, that 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 would that yeah. would come through That would until yep. then, of course, you get sixty thousand records in a, in a second, and all of a sudden they're listed as. You know, I'm saying like half an yeah, hour. It's like, it's like you're like yeah, you're like implementing yeah hyperlogical clock, and then you're like, wait a second, right? Like, but then what happens if you had? And then you're like, oh, like this is right. Someone did solve this, and if yeah, there's, yeah. there's constraints. But well, actually, I wonder. It. So, joking around, but if you're really dealing with with cases where you know you're only inserting like once you know something every and i don't i don't know what the situation you're dealing with but if you're inserting a record every hour or two you could have it fail the change set and retry right right like totally yeah yeah it, and, it all depends what you're building that's why i said i, I didn't want to yeah, be like yeah. i was being pedantic like oh well it wouldn't work for this really esoteric thing right. so it's like a, I'm, sh I'm sure for like the use case that nathan has like like i said integer columns like it's all you need, like ship it. But yeah, it's like if you have like a distributed system with a bunch of people trying to do like concurrent operations that you would then want to like, you know, the answer is like Postgres could just solve this because you just do it in a transaction and the database like ensures ordering and uniqueness. But if you wanted to have like different things happening and then record that in Postgres later and then figure out, okay, who won? Um, Hyperlogical clocks would give you that, but it's like we're going down a rabbit hole of like that applies for a very specific use case of things happening externally that you then record the history of, um, and a lot of people don't need to solve those kinds of problems. Yeah, yeah I think the the key thing for for this is you you just want something that's orderable, which is guaranteed unique, and so anything that you can use that gets you that. It doesn't even have to be the primary key. You could have a UUID primary key and a and a separate sequence column that you add later that you do this stuff with. Um, and you know, if you want to do that sequence as a a, a timestamp that is guaranteed unique somehow, that works just fine. Um, but you have to have those properties somehow. And I feel like if you're gonna have a UUID, but you're also gonna have a unique sequence number, which one of those do you want to be your primary key? I just think it's more convenient to have the sequence be your primary key. Yeah, um, I mean, like I said, I, I totally agree, especially like if, if you don't need the UUID for the specific reasons we talked about, 
um, if like all you have is like, I want to obscure a guessable URL, then like, like you said, Nathan, just add a UUID column and, and, and add an index for it. Um, like, I forget like what the, the big in, um, maximum is. So like, it's worth calling out just for the, um, the comments, someone will be like, oh, well, there's a, yeah, I, I forget, like, what's the maximum number of uh, a, a big in Postgres? So like, if you have specific requirements where integer sequence is a non-starter, then yeah, obviously you have this problem. But I think many of us do not have whatever, whatever that maximum is. Someone should look it up. Uh, big int, oh it's gosh, eight bytes, right? giant number. That's yes. without commas, I'm not going to yeah. guess. <laughs> okay. you know, yeah. one, so two, it's like, yeah. So I guess maybe this proves Nathan's point then, like it, unless you have this distributed system problem, like it's probably not something that someone's ever going to hit for the vast majority of these cases. Yeah. It's funny how something like I put a comment in our in our, our Slack channel like, do you know how to do pagination? Hey, I'm a senior software engineer. Of course I know how to do pagination. <laughs> and then I start looking at it, I'm like, holy cow, there's a lot to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> that's actually amazing because yeah, I, I mean you can't. It, it all depends on the requirements though. Like there's a lot of nuance there. It's like I think yeah. the only pagination I've ever done, at least for like we're talking like displaying websites. Or results on a web page is like the naive approach that you're talking about. Um, it's all the all you ever need, right? Wrong. Yeah. It's like Another. All, you know. Uh, we don't like have to go down this off plenty of times. Until we don't have to go down this rabbit hole. Are hard. Sorry, I mean to talk over you. Uh, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but I had a I had a request that one client. It was a recipe site, and they wanted like every time somebody showed up. They wanted them to get like a random ordering of recipes, but then they had to be able to infinite scroll and continue in that random order. And I was like, oh, this is an interesting problem to solve. <laughs> um, and and so, kind of similarly like with the, the entire result set is random. Uh, well, they the, the ended up saying like, like it doesn't order have to by be... order by rand, but then like also yeah. paginate over seed, that. Yeah. Okay, let's actually let's talk about this. Yeah. Now I'm like, it, it didn't, okay, so it didn't have to be actually random. It just had to be okay. like you're not going to see the same order every okay. time you show up. So I was say otherwise, just, other than keeping like a dead letter of like IDs that you've seen, like how would that you generate a seed? You use the seed. You store a seed. I'm thinking, you know, there's a live view or whatever. You on mount, you generate a seed, and you use that seed to randomize the list. Well, that you'd have to fetch everything. And from the database yeah, into yeah, Elixir, though. Yeah. Well, like, can you tell Postgres what seed to use? And then you just have an offset. But anyway, that's actually, yeah. like you said, Nathan, that's actually a really <laughs> interesting problem. It is funny, though. Like, this is like, yeah, the like the, requ the client requirements. Like, it's one of those things that, like, it sounds like that should be like a very easy thing, right? Like, just yeah. you order the results on a web page. I mean, like, as a programmer, it's actually interesting where you're like, actually, it's going <laughs> to be like insert. two weeks of work. <laughs> <laughs> insert yeah. like add like 10 different columns and just insert random UUIDs in all of them and you pick which column you're you're uh, sorting on you know Maybe. I actually think that that is a really good solution <laughs> you, you get a most 10 10 random you know well, for every column you put in you you'd get a, a, new, a different order but exactly yeah I think that that would actually work pretty well um, 
if you want it to be repeatable and, and all this stuff. Like an, an, another possibility is, um, and I think I, can't, I actually don't remember how I solved this in this case, but I think that there were, it was something along those lines where there were just a, a, a limited number of possible shuffling orders. Um, if you don't have a, actually a huge ton of records, you could generate the IDs, like pull the IDs from the database, shuffle them in memory, and hold them in their session, and then just right. get the records in that order. Yeah, depending yeah. on, yeah, depending on the results set, yeah, you could just do like a select ID on mount, and then you just like select slices of that. I mean, like it's not a whole lot of memory. So yeah, it really depends, but it's yeah, actually, it's, really, it's an interesting problem. When we did um, when we did Phoenix Frenzy, I actually did something kind of like this because um, I wanted to make sure that when you showed up to vote, the orders were randomized, the, the entries were randomized because I didn't want somebody getting more votes just because they happened to be at the top of the page. Um, but every time you did anything on the page, it was re-rendering. So I had to make sure it re-rendered with the same order or like every time you touch the page, it would scramble. Um, so I, in that case, I think I actually did just keep the IDs in memory because I mean, there were like, you know, tens of entries, not millions. Um, so that was that was fun, but also just learning how to do the Postgres query where you actually tell it in this order specifically was was a kind of an adventure. All right. Well, that that was my whole rant topic. <laughs> Anybody got anything else? Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap it up? All right, cool. Well, it was fun uh, talking with you all. Hope you have a, a good afternoon, and catch you later. Yeah, it was okay. a pleasure.